know this Easter is a little different than any Easter I've ever experienced. It's unlike any Easter Sunday I've ever known in my life, and I'm sure in yours as well. Um, I always look forward to on Easter Sunday standing before the congregation and um, declaring Christ is risen and hearing the congregation reply, He is risen indeed. Uh, I hope that you said it maybe in your living room, on your couch, in your office, wherever you're located. Uh, But indeed He is risen and that's why we've gathered today to celebrate the truth of His resurrection. And we're going to take a look at the text in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll read verses 1 to 26 together. Uh, If you have a Bible there with you on your couch or wherever you're gathered to watch the service this morning or the stream this morning, I encourage you to open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'll read verses 1 to 26 for us. It'll be on the screen as well if you don't have one to open this morning. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes these words. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But but by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed." Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised." For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy to be destroyed." Is death. Now, as I said before, this is unlike any Easter that I've ever known. Uh, And this Easter in particular, we are overwhelmed with a, or I might say inundated, flooded with news. 
whether it be from national networks, local affiliates, online news channels, whether it be scrolling through feeds on your Facebook page, or whether it be through Apple News, Google News, Yahoo News, whoever other, uh, whatever other source of news you might access. But all of the news over the course of this last month has essentially been about one of three things. It's been about the worldwide economic collapse, it seems, it's been, or second of all, it's been about this pandemic that, uh, that has spread across the globe and the numbers of infections as they've continued to, uh, to rise. Or third, it's been about the death toll and the catastrophic effects that this virus is having in country after country after country after country. It seems like all the news that we hear these days in this particular cultural historical moment is bad. And so just as this Easter is unlike any other Easter we have ever known, perhaps this Easter, maybe, just maybe even more so than any other Easter, we need some good news. I don't know about you this morning, but I need good news, and I hope you feel the weight of needing good news as well. And if that's true, then I want you to know something. You're in the right place this morning because Easter essentially is about the celebration of good news. It's about the celebration of good news. In the face of all the bad news, in the face of everything that seems to be unraveling around us, or everything that seems to be unraveling within us, Easter brings before our eyes and sets before our hearts once again the good news. See, Easter is not about baskets and eggs. It's not about candy. It's not about these crazy one-eyed chocolate bunnies that must have liver disease because their eyes are yellow, okay? It's not about any of those things, but Easter is about the celebration of good news. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. See, in verse 1, Paul says he's calling their attention to the gospel, okay? And the gospel essentially is this. When you see that word throughout the Bible, when you see it in the New Testament, when the Apostle mentions the gospel, what he is talking about is this Greek word euangelion, which means literally this. It means good news or a good report. Okay, so when Paul talks about the gospel, he's talking about news. That's what Easter is about. Something took place that we commemorate on this day over 2,000 years ago that actually happened in history that we are continuing to remember and to report. See, Easter is about news. In fact, the resurrection of Jesus stands at the very heart of the Christian faith. And at the very heart of the Christian faith is good news, church. If you've been to Redeemer before, you've heard me make this comparison that Christianity, perhaps different than any other world religion or any other worldview or any other philosophy of life, it sets itself apart by being based upon good news, not good advice. See, every other world religion, every other philosophy, every other system, every other thought process or worldview report gives us good advice. But advice essentially is this. It's something that we receive that we must now go do something with. Right? So we hear it and we must do something with it. But news is different because news happens apart from us. News happens apart from our actions. News happens apart from us doing anything. And it's reported to us. So we receive news. 
Right? It's, been, it's happened apart from us about something that has been done not by us or something that will be done not by us. So news, whenever you turn on the news in the evening, you're hearing about things that have happened apart from you, not done by you. That's how news works. And at the heart of the Christian faith, church, listen, is good news, not good advice. It's not good advice. And if you miss this distinction, here's what you end up doing. You end up believing that what you must now do is take all the advice that you've received and you must put it into practice to climb the stairwell up to God, to reach Him. That's what every other religion attempts to do, to climb the stairs up to God. But what Christianity says is this, is that God who exists in holiness, in majesty, in glory, He has come down the stairs to us. That's what it reports. It says God has come down. God has descended. The word Brian used earlier was that He's condescended, that He's come down to our position, that He's come down to our place in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the news that Christianity reports. And Paul gives us specifically three things about this news in this text that I want us to consider this morning. And the first one is this, that Christianity is about the good news that Christ died for our sins. See, in verse 3, the first piece of good news that we receive in this text is that Christ died. See, following His time of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, When Jesus draws aside to be by Himself and with His Father, He was arrested. After His arrest, He had an unjust trial that ends in the death penalty. He was first brought before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish High Religious Council. And they found Him guilty of blasphemy. Now the Sanhedrin, under Roman authority, did not have the authority to put Jesus to death. And so they brought Him uh, to Pilate. And Pilate bounces into Herod, who then bounces him back to Pilate because nobody really wants to deal with this Jewish religious matter until Pilate eventually puts before the people a choice. Who would you like for me to release, a known criminal Barabbas or Jesus? And the crowd cries out to release Barabbas and crucify Jesus. So following that unjust trial before the Jewish religious court, ultimately the state government of Rome sentences Jesus to death and they flog Him, sentence Him, crucify Him. And as He hangs on the cross, one of the Roman soldiers punctures His heart with a spear and out of it blood and water run. But during His time on the cross, the sky turned black and following His death, the curtain in the temple that separated the presence of God and the Holy of Holies from the people of God and the priests of God, it was torn in two from top to bottom. In other words, God tears it in two. It was no human being that tore this. They didn't take scissors and cut it from the bottom to the top. God tore it from top to bottom, then providing access for God's people to the very presence of God through the death of Jesus, because through the death of Jesus, God had dealt definitively with His people's sin. In fact, that's what we're told here. Paul says that the reason all of this takes place, the death of Jesus, is for our sins. See, I want you to realize something this morning, that what is more dangerous to me, what is more dangerous to you than the coronavirus is the cancerous malignancy of our own sin. That is the greatest danger any of us face. 
It is not a virus that has taken this globe by storm, but it's our own sin. And so, what, so, so as you think about sin, many of us have all kinds of opinions and ideas of what sin is. Let me share with you what the Scriptures say sin is. See, while sin is not less than the breaking of a rule, it is much more than the breaking of a rule. Let me show you that, that to you from the Bible. See, sin is building your life, finding your meaning and purpose, looking for satisfaction, significance, and security in anything or anyone other than God. That is the essence of sin. The essence of sin is not violating a parameter or breaking a rule, but it is looking to anything or anyone for meaning, purpose, satisfaction, significance, security, and identity in life. See, before you and I ever break a rule... We betray the relationship that we have with the God who made us. It's the essence of sin. I'll show it to you three, three places in the Scriptures. First of all, back in Genesis chapter 3, in the garden, before Eve ever takes of the fruit of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, the text tells us this in verse 6. It says, when, when she saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit And she ate. See, before she ever ate the fruit, before she ever breaks the rule, before she ever crosses the boundary, she says to herself in her heart, God is not enough for me. I need more than what He can give. He is not sufficient to build my life on. I don't know if I can really trust Him because I believe He might be withholding something from me. I need meaning and purpose apart from Him. He cannot provide me the significant satisfaction and security that my heart longs for and that I desperately need. And so I need to look somewhere else before she ever acts, before she ever breaks the rules, she betrays the relationship with the God who made her. As history unfolds, you see it play out in the lives of the Israelites as well. In Jeremiah chapter 2, we read about Israel forsaking God to build their lives upon the gods of the nations that surrounded them. Listen to what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 2, beginning in verse 11. God says, Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people, verse 13, here's why this is so mind-blowing. Verse 13, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and second of all, hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. See, the Lord says He's the fountain of living waters. In other words, God's saying, I am the source of water that can quench your thirst and I will never run dry, whereas every other source that you look to to quench your thirst, every other source that you look to to bring you satisfaction, every other source of security and significance and identity that you look to in life ultimately is going to run dry and you're going to be left like a man in a desert whose tongue is parched, crying out desperately for water, putting your mouth under whatever you can find and trying to drain it dry. Because you've forsaken the source of water that brings life. 
God says through Jeremiah. See, his people have exchanged God for some other source of meaning and purpose, significance, security, satisfaction, and identity. They've looked to the gods of the other nations. And let's go a step forward. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says that all people everywhere have done the same thing that our first parents did in the garden and that Israel and Judah did in the ancient Near East. Listen to what he says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and following. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and in their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. In verse 25, because... They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is to be blessed forever. See, Paul says, just like Israel in the ancient Near East and just like Adam and Eve in the garden, so we as well have exchanged what is able to be known about God, His glory, His beauty, His majesty, His power. We've exchanged all of that we betrayed the relationship with our Creator to serve and worship things that He has created, the creature. We've exchanged the glory of God for a lie. So we've built our lives, we've built our identity, we've built our security, we've built our satisfaction upon something or someone other than the God who made us. And perhaps, just perhaps... That's why many of us find our lives unraveling right now in the midst of this moment. It's because of things that we've been building our lives on are beginning to erode by the floodwaters of chaos that are crashing. But that's the essence of sin, church. See, before you ever break a rule, you're building your identity on something other than God. And if you move forward in Romans, Paul tells us in Romans 6.23 that what we deserve on account of this exchange that we've made is death. He says what we earn, the wages of sin, is death. That's what we deserve. That's what we've earned. That's what we've brought upon ourselves as we've exchanged God and built our lives on something or someone other than Him. Now that's the bad news. But what's the good news? Here's the good news, church is that though we have forsaken God, God has not forsaken us. He has not forsaken. But we've abandoned Him and we've walked away from Him. He has not abandoned us and He has moved towards us in His love. In Romans chapter 3, verse 25, we're told that God has put forward a substitute who would die in our place. We're told that God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by His blood. That word propitiation is a big theological term. 
But it basically means this, that what God has done in Jesus is he has taken, Jesus has taken the wrath of God, God's anger against our sin and our betrayal. He's taken that upon himself so that he could turn that from you and I. He has taken it and turned it. Because although we've forsaken God, He has not forsaken us. We've forgotten about God, He has not forgotten about us. We abandoned God, but He has not abandoned us. Because Paul says the good news of the gospel is that Christ died for our sins, for our betrayal, for our abandonment, for our quest for identity apart from God. Charles Spurgeon, he's one of my favorite preachers of all time, he said it this way, Jesus has borne the death penalty on our behalf. Behold the wonder. There he hangs upon the cross. This is the greatest sight you will ever see. Son of God and Son of Man, there he hangs, bearing pains unutterable, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. Christ died for our sins, and that's good news, church, that God has not forgotten about you. The second piece of good news is this. My daughter said whenever she was three years old as we approached Easter, she said, Jesus is about to be raised. Right? Because it's about the good news that Christ was raised. See, in verses 4 and in verse 20, Paul tells us that although Jesus was buried, He didn't stay in the grave. See, Jesus did really die. Right? He was a homeless, and he was a homeless man who had no tomb to be buried in. So a very wealthy man who was a secret follower of Jesus donated his tomb to the crucified Christ. And Jesus' body was wrapped in nearly 100 pounds of linen along with spices and was anointed with perfumes. Jesus' body was placed in the tomb with a large stone rolled over the mouth of the tomb and guards posted to make sure his body was not stolen nor tampered with. But on the third day, when the women go to the tomb, they find the stone had been rolled away, that Jesus' body was nowhere to be found, and that his grave clothes were lying there alone, folded in place. And listen, throughout the New Testament, I want you to know something. Throughout the New Testament, the authors of the Scriptures, they speak of the resurrection as a historical reality, as something that actually happened. And listen, the... <laughs> In subsequent centuries and millennia, right, the objective historical evidence indicates that something happened in that tomb on Sunday morning. So much so that forests have been cut down and, and vats of ink have been spilled, postulating theories about what actually happened other than the resurrection. And there are several other theories that people have come up with. Let me share with you a few of them and tell you why they don't make any sense. The first one is this, is that these, these women and the apostles initially went to the wrong grave. They went to the wrong tomb. Okay? But if that had been the case, if so, listen, do you really think that subsequent visitors to the tomb would have said, hey, listen, guys, that is not where we buried him. It was actually over here. Or the authorities who were trying to crush the spread and rise of early Christianity as it began to spread like wildfire across the Roman Empire wouldn't have said, hey, listen, you numbskulls, that is not the right tomb. You got it wrong. Right? They would have ultimately realized that they were in the wrong place. Someone would have pointed that out to them. Second of all, some would say that Jesus didn't really die. He just appeared to be dead. Listen, if you had the heart, the sack around your heart punctured with a spear and blood and water run out, okay, 
where your heart no longer has the, 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 the protection that it needs or the resources that it needs to continue to pump blood through your body, you would not have appeared to be dead. You would have died. And if he didn't really die, do you think that a man who had had his flesh stripped from his back, a crown of thorns pierced his brow, nails driven through his hands and feet, his side pierced and punctured, could have rolled away, had enough strength to stand up a few days later, right? Just two days later. Okay, we're not talking about two months later. Two days later and rolled a large stone away that covered the mouth of his tomb and survived without seeking some kind of medical care. And if he had sought some kind of medical care, people would have realized right, that he didn't really die. Here he is in this state. He's alive and the resurrection would have been written off or never would have really get, gotten traction. Third, the disciples, some say the disciples took the body. But listen, if that's the case, do you really think that they would have kept up this hoax whenever they began to face imprisonment and death? They'd have been like, hey, guys, we, we were just playing, right? Here he is, over here, let's produce the body. Right? We were, just, we were just kidding. Fourth, some say the authorities took the body. And if that would have been the case, the easiest way to crush the swell of early Christian movement would have been to produce it. They say, here he is. He's not really risen. He's not the God they claim him to be. Finally, others have said, listen, the gospel accounts can't be trusted. They're just kind of like historical fiction. And listen, C.S. Lewis, one of, the most four, one of the foremost literary scholars of the 20th century, said this about the gospels. He says, I've been reading poems, romances, vision, literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like. And none of them are like this. Speaking of the Gospels, of the Gospels, of this, the Gospels, there are only two possible views. Either this is reported or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern, novelistic, realistic narrative. See, Lewis says, listen, I've been reading ancient fiction all my life, and ancient fiction doesn't read like modern fiction. Modern fiction reads as if it were a true story with all kinds of details sprinkled in. But ancient fiction doesn't read like that. And Lewis says, there's two, there's, there's, there's two explanations. Either right, somebody built a time machine out of a DeLorean and went back in time and with, with an understanding of what modern fiction is like and wrote the gospel accounts and then came back to their era without anyone after that picking up that whole genre of literature until 2,000 years later, or these are actual historical accounts. Which is more probable? Listen, as Sherlock Holmes said, when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Listen, none of these other theories hold water whenever you actually think out the implications of what people are proposing. So Jesus did actually rise from the grave, and that's good news. The third way that the gospel is good news that Paul tells us in this text is that not only did Christ die for our sins, not only was He raised from the grave, but He is also returning to reign. The news that Christ, that Jesus is returning to reign. In verses 20 to 26, Paul tells us that there's a day that's coming in which Jesus will return to defeat His enemies and He will rule forever. See, in verses 12 to 19, Paul refutes the claim that some were making that the dead are not raised. And then in verses 20 to 26, Paul affirms that Christ has been raised from the dead and that He will come again one day. 
And when he comes, he says that those who have found forgiveness through his death and freedom through his resurrection will be raised with him. And when he comes, he will defeat all that stand opposed to him and he will reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. And the final enemy, he says, to be defeated is death. In fact, if you read further down in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul goes on to say that death now uh, will, will one day be swallowed up in victory. In verses 54 and 55, he says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, when the mortal puts on immortality. In other words, when the resurrection of the body takes place, of our bodies take place, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? See, there's a day that's coming, church. A day that's coming on the horizon when Jesus returns to reign. He's going to swallow up death in victory like a nine-pound bass swallows up a shad on the surface of the water. Listen, many of you know I love to fish. And one of the things that I love to see early in the mornings, this time of the year, is when the bass begin to feed on shad on top of the water. And you'll see that large eight, nine-pound bass come up uh, at times in crystal clear water, and you'll see his gills flare. And that big bucket mouth opens, and he just inhales those shad and sucks them down into his belly. I love that image because that's what Paul says is going to happen one day to death. That one day it's going to be swallowed up by Jesus in his return, and it shall be no more. This is the good news. Christ died for our sins. Christ has been raised from the grave. Christ will one day return to rule and reign. This is the gospel. So what do we make of all this news? Listen, I want you to know something. The news does something. Whenever you and I hear bad news, it has an effect on us. When we hear good news, it has an effect on us. And I want you to know there's four results or four effects in our lives that can only come through the gospel. Let me share them with you briefly. First of all, only in the gospel, only in this good news, is there rest. Only in the gospel. See, you and I can live in one of two ways. You and I can live either for an identity or we can live from an identity. We can either... Right, there's, there's only two ways of understanding yourself, understanding who you are, that you can understand yourself as someone who has achieved their identity or someone who has received their identity. Identity achieved or identity received. And listen, for many of us who may be watching this morning, we have lived our lives as a series of proofs. In other words, let me tell you what I mean by that. In other words, we have sought to prove how smart and sophisticated we are to other people. Or we've sought to prove how simple and satisfied we are. We've sought to prove how assertive and how attractive we are, how independent and self-made we are. We've sought to prove to other people how wealthy and wise we are, how powerful and popular and prestigious we are. We've sought to prove to other people all of these things. And some of you are watching like, I have, I have nothing to prove to anyone. But listen, Some of us have sought to prove by the way that we live to other people who are around us that we have nothing to prove. Right? We've all lived with something to prove, some kind of chip, some identity we've been trying to achieve, some way that we want to be seen by others, some way that we that we the perspective that we want people to view us with, the lens through which we want others to view us. 
We've all lived with an identity that we've been trying to achieve. And listen, if, and, if apart from Christianity, apart from news coming to you about something that's been done, not by you, but for you, you will have to live to achieve an identity. Either as sophisticated or simple. As someone who's got a chip on their shoulder trying to prove something or someone who's not trying to prove anything, but you're trying to prove with others that you're not trying to prove anything. And see, apart from an identity received by something that was done for you by someone else, apart from that, listen, your work is never done and there will be no rest for your soul. Because you'll be constantly trying to prove something to someone. On the other hand, the gospel says you really can live with nothing to prove because you're not trying to achieve an identity by what you've done, but rather you've received one by what Christ has done for you by faith in what Jesus has done. You don't have to work to impress others. You don't have to work to impress yourself. And you don't have to work to impress God. See, every other worldview and every other religion spells salvation with two letters, do. But only Christianity spells it with four, and that's done. Something's been done for you. Something's been done for you. Not, not you're doing things to impress God. You're doing things to impress others. You're doing things to impress yourself and build an identity, but it's been done for you. That's good news, church. That's an implication of this good news of Christ living, dying, rising, and returning. Is it because the gospel is not advice about what you should go and do to earn God's approval, but the gospel is news about what God has done to receive you as His child because it's not advice about what you should do, but it's news about what has been done, then you can rest in an identity that you receive and you don't have to work to achieve one for yourself. Second of all, this news has an impact because only in the gospel is there forgiveness. See, I want you to know something, church, that God is not a God of second chances. That's how many of us tend to think of God. Even, even people who believe they're Christians, they tend to think of God as a God of second chances. That what God's going to do is He's going to give me a do-over with my life. But God is not a God of second chances, but a God of lavish grace. A, la- a God of lavish grace. Okay, so you don't get a do-over, but you get stamped over your life in Christ. The four-letter words we said already that's been done. What that means is that no matter what you've done in your past, no matter who you've been, no matter who you've done it with or where you did it, you can be assured of being forgiven by God through the death of Jesus Christ because His death at the cross is part of the, pay, is a, the payment for the penalty of your sins is sufficient to cover anything that you've done. And when I say anything, I don't mean anything but what you've done. I mean anything including what you've done. Anything and everything. It means you don't have to bear the weight of your guilt and shame any longer for all of your unrighteous acts in the past. No matter how much debt you stacked up by the way that you lived, that you can find forgiveness in Christ and your guilt and shame can be removed because there was a lamb who died to take it away. And listen, I want you to know, just as, just as you don't have to bear the guilt and shame of your unrighteousness any longer, you don't have to expend the emotional energy to try to cover up and conceal to maintain your self-righteousness any longer. You can be forgiven for that as well. For all the times that you've looked at other people and thought, 
listen, God must look upon me with favor because I didn't do that. I may have done this, but I didn't do that. You know what that is called? It's called self-righteousness. It's trying to create your own standard by which God should measure and judge us. But God has a standard. It's called perfection. And the only one to ever meet it is Jesus. And so in Him, listen, in Him, if you understand the gospel and you respond to it, listen, you don't have to try to conceal. You don't need base or found... What, is that what you ladies call it? Base, foundation, what you put on to kind of cover up the blemishes. Uh, you don't need that any longer in your spiritual life. But you can live honestly and authentically before God. You can have your guilt and shame dealt with, and you don't have to try to cover and conceal any longer. Because Jesus died for all the times that we did what we shouldn't do and all the times when we failed to do what we should. Third, only in the gospel is there freedom. See, just as Jesus has been raised from the grave, victorious over Satan, sin, and death, so also have all who have been forgiven in Christ, all who have found rest in Christ, now have freedom from the power of sin over their life. Paul says it this way in Romans 6, beginning in verse 4, he says, But we were, we were buried, therefore with Him, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. For we know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And then down in verse 11 he says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make it make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For, God, for Paul to say, for God to say to us through the Apostle Paul, let not sin reign in your mortal body. Don't present your members to sin any longer as instruments of unrighteousness. For him to say that assumes that we've been set free from our enslavement to sin and we now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, have the capacity to say no to sin and to say yes to God. To say no to unrighteousness and yes to righteousness. Charles Wesley said it this way in an old hymn that he wrote. He said in, in, in a hymn called, And Can It Be That I Should Gain? He said, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I awoke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. See, with freedom from sin that comes from considering ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. God has empowered us and given us the freedom to say no to sin and yes to Him. So that we can say no, listen church, to all the, all the broken wells that we have sought identity in and all the idolatry, and say yes to the worship of the true God. We can say no to all of our greed and say yes to generosity. We can say no to covetousness and say yes to contentment in our lives. 
We can say no to perversion and yes to purity, no to lust, and yes to an actual love of other people. We can say no to our self-centeredness and yes to service. We can say no to bitterness in our lives and yes to forgiveness towards those who have wounded and wronged us. We can say no to our pride and we can say yes to humility. We can say no to unrighteousness, yes to righteousness, no to sin, yes to God. There's freedom, but it is only found in the gospel. Fourth and finally, only in the gospel is there hope. Only in the gospel is there hope. Listen, no matter the hopelessness that you feel right now, no matter the uncertainty and kind of out of controlness, That's a word I just made up, I believe. But no matter what you feel right now in this moment, I want you to know that your life, my life, our life will not always be this way. Because one day Christ is coming to set everything right. He's returning to reign. And when He does, listen, I want you to know all the sad things will come untrue. All the brokenness will one day be turned to beauty. All the heartaches will one day be healed. Listen, all the the disappointments one day will be dealt with in their entirety. All the wounds will be closed. The scabs will no longer itch and need to be picked and open themselves up. And the scars, listen, they will no longer be reminders of grief, but they will be evidences of grace. Evidences of grace in our life. See, there's a day that's coming when all of our happily ever afters will come true. Right? Because there is a beauty who is coming that can tame the beast inside of every single one of us. There's a prince whose kiss will one day fully and finally wake us up from the curse. There's a father whose love is so deep and so strong for his children that one day it will turn us from hollow puppets into real little boys and real little girls. You might be thinking to yourself, like, those are all fairy tales, right? Don't you live, you live in this fantasy land, preacher. Well, listen, you want them to be true, don't you? You want all those things to be true. I want all those things to be true. I want there to be a love of a father like that. I want there to be a kiss like that. I want there to be a beauty like that. And listen, the fact that we long for those things, that we long for that. I want to tell you something. You and I want that so bad because what that is is a desire. It's an echo deep within our souls for heaven. And when I speak to you that way, what I'm trying to do is rip open a world that you know must be there. Must be there. And it's coming one day. And listen, in the midst of this pandemic, in the midst of the death toll, in the midst of the infections, in the midst of the economic collapse, in the midst of everything that many people have built their identities on, I want you to know that if you will receive this good news that Christ is returning to reign, that you can hope, have hope that lasts beyond this life and that transcends the money in your bank account or the cells in your body right now, you can have hope. You can be free. You can find forgiveness and you can have rest. But how? I would be remiss not to tell you how to do this. And so I want to tell you briefly as we close. First of all, listen, first of all, we need to repent of our sin. 
you're saying, how do I have hope? How do I find freedom? How do I get this rest that you're talking about, preacher? It's this way. You've got to repent of your sin. Remember, sin's not merely the breaking of a rule. It's looking to anything or anyone other than God as the ultimate source of your identity, meaning, satisfaction, significance, purpose, and security. So to repent of sin, listen, it doesn't mean I just stop doing all the bad things that I was doing. It means that I forsake all the broken wells that I was drinking from. It means that I turn from those things. It means that I no longer try to find my identity bound up in my job. I no longer try to find my security rooted in my family. It means I no longer try to find my significance in my zip code or in the dollars in my bank account. It means that I no longer look for meaning or purpose in life through leisure and hobbies. It means that I forsake all of those broken wells, even some of those things that are good things, that whenever you make them into ultimate things in your life, they become destructive things. That you turn from those things and you say, I'm not going to find identity. I'm not going to find security. I'm not going to find significant satisfaction, meaning, or purpose in those things any longer. I'm going to look to God and God alone to be the source of all that I need. That's what it is to repent of sin. It's not saying I'm going to stop doing bad things and start doing good things. To say, I'm going to forsake all of those wells. I'm going to stop exchanging. I'm going to stop exchanging the truth of God for a lie. I'm going to stop exchanging the creator for the created in my life. Repent of your sin. And then second of all, second of all, to believe in God's appointed Savior. Believe in God's appointed Savior. In Romans chapter 3, verse 25, we're told... That not only did God put Jesus forward as a propitiation, as we talked about earlier, but the way that that gets applied to our lives is when we receive it by faith. Paul says it's to be received. Jesus' work for us is to be received by faith. Now listen, to believe, to have faith, to trust Jesus, is not less than affirming the facts of His life and death and resurrection. But listen, that's where many people who believe they're Christians, that's where they stopped. They kind of stopped there. They walked an aisle. They prayed a prayer. They filled out a card. They believed the facts that Jesus lived, that Jesus died, that Jesus was raised, that Jesus is returning. And to believe in Jesus is not less than those things. But listen, I want you to know that it's more. Let me show you how it's more. In John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus stands up at a feast, at a, Jew, a Jewish feast, and He makes this declaration He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. See, what does it mean then for Jesus to say, I'm the bread of life. I'm the place that you can eat and have your fill and be satisfied. I am the place that will provide for you forever. I am the well, like God says in the Old Testament, I'm the fountain of living waters that will never run dry. Jesus says, I am the one upon whom you can feast and always have your fill and come back for more and more and more because it makes you satisfied to eat of me, to have fellowship with me, to dine with me. Versus all these other gods of all these other places that we've sought significance and identity from. You go back to them. You know why? Not because they fill you, but because they leave you empty. 
And you have to go back to them more and more and more and more. So there's an ever-increasing escalation of emptiness in your life because they can never fill you. But you go back to Jesus because He's the only one who can. And there's an ever-increasing escalation of fullness in your life as you go back to Him because He's the bread of life. He says, whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? It means the same thing that it does to come to him. You see that parallel? Whoever comes to me, whoever believes in me, shall never hunger, shall never thirst. Those two things don't mean something different. He's saying the same thing in two different ways. That to come to Jesus is to believe in Him. To trust in Him is to come to Him. So what is he talking about here? He's saying to believe in God's appointed Savior is this. It means you forsake all of your other sources of identity and security. And that you come to Jesus and you say, Jesus, you alone or the source of my identity. Jesus, you alone are the source of my security. Jesus, you alone. I believe in you. I don't just affirm the facts about what you, who you are and what you did, but I'm actually enjoying you. I'm feasting on you. I'm coming to you. I'm believing in you. I'm trusting in you. I'm saying you and no other are the source of everything that I need. Does that, does that remotely describe any experience you've ever had? I do not want at the judgment day for God to look at you, for God to look at me and say, depart from me, for I never knew you. And you say, well, didn't we do all these great things in your name, Jesus? And Jesus to say, yeah, but I never knew you. Because you were looking to something or someone other than me for your security, identity, significant satisfaction, meaning, and purpose. Easter is about good news. Christ died for our sins. He was raised from the grave. He's returning to reign so that we can have rest for our souls because we receive an identity from Him, not achieve one for ourselves. We can have forgiveness for all of our unrighteousness and all of our self-righteousness. We can have freedom from sin so that it no longer reigns over our life and we can have hope that things tomorrow will not always be as they are today. But the only way all of that is ours is if we repent of our sin turning aside from our broken wells. And we come to Jesus as the only one who can ever fill us and satisfy us. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for the good news this Easter of the gospel. So that no matter what is going on around us, within us we can be secure, we can be full, we can be lacking nothing, though in every way perplexed and crushed. And Father, I pray that this Easter, there are many under the sound of my voice right now, that you would open their eyes, you would quicken their hearts to know the truth of the gospel, to believe not only in the facts of who Jesus is, but to be delighted by it, 
to be satisfied, to be filled with it. So that what thrills their heart is the good news of your son. What thrills their heart more than the production of antiviral medications, what thrills their heart more than the discovery of a vaccine might be the mystery and the beauty of Jesus living in their place, the mystery and beauty of Jesus dying in their place, the mystery and beauty of Jesus rising from the grave, the mystery and beauty of Jesus returning to reign so that all their hope would be in Him. And He would turn the eyes of your people once again to you in the midst of this critical moment in their lives, in the life of our nation, the life of this land, the life of this globe, the world that you've created. He would turn our eyes to you, fix our eyes on you. Help us to do that now as we sing together. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.